0: Our podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. We have a very special edition of the podcast today. We're in Studio B, which usually means we have the guest in-house with us. Yeah, which is always great. It's always great, and usually if the guest is in-house, there's somebody of, uh, of uh, high magnitude, and that is true in spades today.
1: Yeah, our guest today is Admiral Jamie Fogo, the commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe, Naval Forces Africa, and Joint Force Allied Joint Force Command Naples. Admiral Fogo, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, Bill and Ward. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here in one of my favorite places, uh, Annapolis, Maryland, where uh, my career started, but uh, even more so the United States Naval Institute, which is a force multiplier for the sailors and Marines out in the field.
1: So we just had you, you were uh, generous with your time today's lunch with uh, with our CEO, but then you had a, a nice 45 minute conversation with the whole staff down in our conference room that spanned a number of different topics that I want our listeners to be aware of. Uh, and I was thinking of this, I was listening to uh, your podcast, which is called On the Horizon. That's your Navier Sixth Fleet uh, um, Naval Forces Africa podcast. It just started earlier this year. You're up to uh, 11 episodes now. So I was listening to a couple of those yesterday. And it, it struck me that, you know, there's a lot of talk about the high-end fight and the peer competition and all this stuff. But Navier and Naval Forces Africa, you go from the the high north – uh, so above the Arctic Circle, uh, and you're, you're dealing up there with fifth generation Russian submarines, that, that fourth battle of the Atlantic that you wrote about in proceedings a few years ago. And then you, you're dealing with all kinds of problems, uh, to nation state sort of foundational problems on the West Coast, East Coast, all over Africa. Uh, so how do you, how do you juggle that? not only that uh, geographic span, but also that scope of problem from a pure competition problem to illegal fisheries off of the Gulf of Guinea, for example?
2: Hey, that's a great opening question, Bill. And you were uh, uh, very nice to kind of categorize the fact that uh, it's uh, three different jobs, two headquarters that I occupy. And uh, I'm a big fan of the literature, and uh, one of the books that I like – best is uh, Stan McChrystal's team of teams. So we couldn't do this without uh, the team players that we have in Naples, Italy. So you know, just to clarify for the listeners, the uh, Naval Forces Europe and Naval Forces Africa headquarters is uh, self-contained uh, with uh, Sixth Fleet Vice Admiral Lisa Franchetti and I share a headquarters at the airport in Cappadochino in Naples. So it's kind of an odd place for a naval facility that doesn't have water around it. But, of course, Naples is surrounded by water down on the pier. But we're there because of the uh, convenience of our ability to operate. We can get out. We can get out uh, about Europe. But there's about 600 and some people there that support really three combatant commanders when you think about it. Uh, we support uh, UCOM, we support AFRICOM and our Naval Forces Europe, our Naval Forces Africa had. But there's a seamless line of integration with CENTCOM and uh, NAV CENT, Vice Admiral Malloy, And we are sharing forces and intelligence and trying to help one another in that fight across the unified command plan line. And then, of course, Echelon One here back um, in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., with the Chief of Naval Operations. Secondly, I am privileged to be the commander of uh, Joint Force Command, the Allied Command of NATO, uh, that's about 30 minutes down the road from uh, Capodacino. And there are 1,000 people in that headquarters. We are represented by 29, soon to be 30, uh, NATO allies when North Macedonia comes on board. And there are 41 partner nations that NATO partners with. Uh, We did Trident Juncture with Sweden and Finland. They were an integral part of that. But there are others who are either in the building or come through the building periodically. So we're very, very busy and we could not do it without this team approach. And you're right, the uh, scope of the area that we operate in goes from the geographic North Pole all the way down to the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and from about mid 45 west to the shores of Crimea. The bodies of water are the Arctic, North Atlantic, Baltic Sea, Mediterranean Sea, Black Sea, and all the waters around Africa bordering on uh, the Red Sea, and out into the Gulf and Indian Ocean. So that's all CENTCOM territory, but we do have cognizance over uh, African territorial waters as a part of the work that we do with AFRICOM. So very, very busy. Lots of things going on. Uh, we have to prioritize. Great power competition, and our national defense strategy has allowed us to do that. So
0: in recent years, NATO has been in the pop landscape conversation and the political sphere in, in sort of a negative way um, in that there's some sense that other nations aren't paying their way, and there's some sense that its utility has, has gone by the wayside. What, what do you say to that, those sort of uh, charges and that, that sort of criticism?
2: Well, I think that uh, the discussion on burden sharing, or um, the uh, we seem to be uh, focusing on a fixed percentage of GDP that the nations uh, have agreed to in the past, and that is 2% of GDP should be spent on defense. And some nations meet that requirement, like the uh, Baltic nations. They are smaller nations. I just had the three Baltic tribes in the headquarters, but they're at 2%, and they are punching above their weight class. Other nations do not quite uh, meet that number, but in the last couple of years, uh, with help from uh, our leadership in Washington, D.C., we've helped the alliance focus on that. This is a conversation that should have been had uh, decades ago. Uh, It's about... uh, carrying the burden with other partners and other allies in the NATO alliance and it is necessary because we can do more with these resources and it should not always be uh, the United States. That said, I'm still pretty positive and proud and a huge proponent of the transatlantic relationship. Things that have happened recently um, out in the field in the exercise domain. This time last year we were fully ensconced and exercised, Trident Juncture. That was the largest NATO exercise. It was our certification to become the NATO Rapid Reaction Force, the NATO Response Force, the NRF, they call it. So it was our live ex at sea. But we had 50,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines ward involved in this exercise, about uh, 70 ships, 265 aircraft from all type model series from the alliance uh, that were conducting air operations over the high north, Uh, and we had 10,000 tracked or rolling vehicles. It was done in a very cold climate so that we could train like we would fight. It was an Article 5 uh, operation. Now, Article 5 of the NATO charter from 1949, signed in Washington, D.C. back in 1949, says that an attack on one is an attack on all. So the alliance has been around for 70 years. And despite the differences we might have on uh, burden sharing and some nations being less than 2%, I can tell you this, and some people are surprised by this when I tell them. The only time Article 5 has ever been used for real in that 70 years was the attack on America in 911. And the Allies came to our side and went into Afghanistan with an operation against violent extremists that perpetrated this attack. And uh, they've been with us ever since. So I think. That's one of the reasons why I'm such a huge proponent of the Alliance, a big transatlanticist, and why I was delighted that uh, this past year uh, we brought back Second Fleet and we established a new Joint Force Command NATO in Norfolk, Virginia, with Vice Admiral Woody Lewis. In fact, uh, Woody was just out in Iceland working with the surface action group that was coming over and training his team on how to integrate with our team as they pass through our theater and do all sorts of great missions in the maritime domain.
1: Admiral um, Daly was talking to Admiral Lewis because Admiral Lewis is uh, contemplating writing something about his uh, not only his NATO hat but but the sort of reactivation of Second Fleet and and taking Second Fleet forward not just as a man train and equip sort of force provider but as a force employer. Uh, which seems to be somewhat modeled, maybe on the on the Seventh Fleet, Third Fleet model out in out in the Pacific. Is that did that come from that at all? Was it the Third Fleet forward model? Was that used to 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 bring back Second Fleet and to uh, to model what Second Fleet did this summer in Ball Tops?
2: Well, I'd answer that question with uh, Bill, sort of, kind of. Um, the way we've. Uh, we've settled on this in the European theater is there's been obviously a lot of discussion and there's a lot of work ongoing. And uh, we haven't come to uh, a conclusion yet on exactly how all of this integration is gonna take place. But one of the things that all the naval officers and senior leadership can agree on is that we like a supported and supporting relationship. So uh, we're a little different than the other services. So in a land army, you take and hold territory, which means there's some kind of a forward line of battle, there are troops in the field, uh, there is support for those troops in the field, and uh, you're gonna hold that territory until that territory becomes liberated, the conflict is over, you're gonna move on and you're gonna take other territory. But uh, since Alfred Mahan, in the Navy, uh, we have always maneuvered at sea to control the seas, which doesn't mean that you have to have a thousand ships out there controlling any one particular part of the ocean. We are present, and we are there with our ability to project power uh, with stealth and agility and flexibility, and a lot of the new technologies uh, assist us in that, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered submarines, platforms that can move very quickly, very stealthily, and get to places and do intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance and detect problems before they arise and then bring force to bear through uh, you know, DMO, the dynamic maneuver and operability of the United States Navy as, uh, as we move forward uh, with our strategy. We demonstrated that with uh, dynamic force employment uh, this past year with Harry S. Truman as she maneuvered about the theater in several different missions over a seven-month period, strike missions in East Med, support for ball tops in the Adriatic flying over land, and then operations in the high north in support of Trident Juncture. Uh, So DMO, Distributed Maritime Operations, is the way for us to get the most bang for our buck and to provide that sea control without actually having to be out there uh, and holding any kind of territory. We know what happens because we've got the ability to look over the horizon, and then we can bring force to bear uh, to prevent a conflict or deter a crisis if necessary. And so that's why I think that's one of the primary reasons why we brought back uh, the second fleet and why we've established a joint force command for NATO in Norfolk, Virginia. The integration of those forces, I mean, there's obviously, uh, it's a fleet concentration area. There's a lot of gray-hulled hardware there and we want to make sure that that integration is seamless as uh, they come across the Atlantic. So we're working out the C2 relationships now and what Admiral Lewis will be doing as a fleet commander, what Admiral Franchetti will do as a traditional fleet commander for Sixth Fleet, how Admiral Franchetti's NATO command of Strike Force NATO helps integrate and coordinate the arrival of new forces from America in the event of a crisis, and how we work with Maritime Command, MARCOM, uh, which is NATO's maritime headquarters in Northwoods, UK, just outside of London. So there are a number of uh, complex relationships that need to be worked through here. But the good news is that Second Fleet is back. That gives us a, a lot more force multiplication capability in time of crisis. And we are training right now for any contingency that might happen uh, in the future. And I think that's uh very reassuring to our allies, and it's certainly reassuring to me.
0: Well, Sixth Fleet is also back, and I'm thinking about all of us in the in the studio here are sort of the same vintage. Early in our careers, Sixth Fleet was the center of gravity, and then later in our careers, that was sort of a, especially for an East Coast sailor, you would sort of haul through the Med into the ION and then sort of park there, worried about um, the, the, the threats in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so I'm thinking of, When I was department head, last cruise of USS America, Kuznetsov in Chopped the Med. Um, We did some sort of, let's call it a bilat with them. And uh, our H-60 guys went over there with some of the uh, the flag staff and and realized what disrepair the ship was in already as a brand new ship. Quote, unquote, they couldn't make water. They were anchored off Tunisia. Um, And so... We, in fact, uh, Admiral Cross was USA Batgrew, and we did, we launched 50 airplanes on the oldest aircraft carrier in a single sortie that the Navy had as a way to show. And they had one SU-27 navalized variant that could not launch or land. Um, so, but that's when they were an ascendant threat, right? I mean, they were a viable and real threat back then. Now, uh, you were just talking to us. Kuznetsov is in disrepair, if, if not almost like sinking or sunk. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Russian threat is, is done. So wh- how, how can you explain what, is, what, is, what keeps you up at night about the Russians and what you're not worried about when we think about Russia?
2: Well, first of all, um, you know, the Russians are resilient and uh, they're very innovative and they're also uh, a highly tactical force. Um, a long time ago when I worked for uh, Admiral Greenard as N-81 and then in N-3-5, You know, we used to talk about this in the context of uh, the former maritime strategy, CS-21R. And, uh, you know, he would say, uh, never denigrate or disdain uh, a competitor or a potential adversary. Otherwise, you'll become overconfident. And so some people are surprised to hear me say that I have great respect for uh, the Russian Federation Navy. I have great respect for the PLA Navy because... Uh, They are a capable force, and they are increasing in capacity and capability every day. And uh, we need to ensure that we can overmatch that capability in every aspect of what we do in the land, in the air, on the sea, in cyber and space. So back to the Russian Federation Navy. Yes, the Kuznetsov is in disrepair. Uh, They deployed, when I was 6th Fleet Commander, into the Mediterranean, but... That aircraft carrier is an old V-Stall carrier, an old Ukrainian version of the carrier, jump jet style. Served more as, uh, you know, I hesitate to say uh, the term row-row, but it was a, a ship that delivered aircraft to the fight in Syria, which was being uh, fought over land, and they needed that uh, air capacity and capability for air cover. It was not... Uh, the type of aircraft carrier of a Nimitz variety and certainly not of a Ford variety. We outclass every other Navy in the world, and I'm very happy to say that. I don't say that boastfully, uh, but the Chinese want carriers. Uh, The Russians certainly want a carrier or more, uh, but they don't have it. And so in the surface Navy, they've recapitalized with uh, smaller ships, with frigates and patrol craft that operate in the Baltic, in the Mediterranean, in the Black Sea, and they're very capable. They've taken advantage ashore of having areas which are in uh, strategic locations, like Kaliningrad, where uh, they have an anti-access area denial capability, which is unmatched in the Baltic, and it's a big threat to the Baltic nations and to what we do as NATO up there. Same thing in Crimea, now that they've illegally occupied Crimea, they're building it up with uh, air defense systems and, and area denial systems same thing in tartus and latakia in syria the eastern mediterranean is becoming very very busy so we have to take that into account as i've said and as you pointed out bill earlier uh, in the piece i wrote with dr alec fritz here in proceedings uh, the fourth battle of the atlantic is well underway the russian submarine force is very capable very capable throughout time through the uh, cold war and uh, the post cold war period they have they've been intelligent enough to put resources R and D into their submarine force, because they know that that is our niche capability. Uh, we still have the edge, but for how long? Uh, there's some very capable platforms out there uh, that can threaten us. Severod guesses Gn comes to mind. It's a very quiet and capable platform, and they're building more of them. I also, when I talk about sea lines of communication, Mahan never anticipated, I don't think. Uh, it would be great to be able to ask him someday. Uh, A sea line of communication in the undersea domain, our critical infrastructure, which is so important, and could be subject to a hybrid threat. And so somehow we've got to be able to protect that. How do we do that? With presence, with maneuver, with agility, with ISR, and with flexibility at sea. So when we talk about control of the seas in the manner in which I explained it in the previous question, I think that we have to look at uh, a new slot, which is our critical infrastructure that rests uh, at the bottom of the oceans worldwide. 90% of our communications goes via those rats, and, uh, and we need to be cognizant of that as we think about the future.
1: How, how do you manage the day-to-day friction with, with the Russians? Over the last couple of years, I, I'm particularly remembering the interaction between an SU-24 and the USS Donald Cook. Uh, where right. the Su-24 flew danger close and fast, right. Uh, right. and and that got headline news just a couple of years ago. And there have been incidents like that with Su-27s coming very close to P-3s or P-8s over exactly. the, the Black Sea. Uh, is has uh, the incidents at sea agreement with the Russians? Has that been reinvigorated? H- has that been? Have you been involved at your level with with talks with the Russians about hey, let's act professionally and knock this kind of thing off before before somebody gets killed.
2: Well, uh, excellent question, and there's a a couple of aspects uh, to that question that uh, I'd like to get into here quickly. One, yes, the Donald Cook uh, occurred uh, while I was the 6th Fleet Commander, and what was most important about that is uh, the ship was uh, in international waters. I think it was about 78 nautical miles off of uh, Kaliningrad Oblast. So what happened that day was uncalled for, Uh, but I had warned them going up there that uh, as they passed through the Danish Straits and into the Baltic, that they should be prepared for something like that. And that uh, the only way that the world would recognize that it happened is if they had a recording or a photograph. And so uh, the commanding officer, Chuck Hampton, told me afterwards, well, I had six combat cameramen on each bridge wing. And I was like, wow, that's a lot. He goes, well, you told me if something happened, I had to be prepared. So that was part of their you know, uh, manned battle stations type drill for uh, close aboard contacts. What a lot of people don't know is that uh, at the time they were doing what we call a hot pump of a Polish aircraft that was doing deck landing calls on deck. So the Polish helicopter had landed and was being refueled while the rotors were turning. And here comes this Russian hot dog in his jet, you know, doing, uh, you know, several hundred knots. And uh, the distance between wingtip and the deck of Donald Cook was about 30 feet. And, you know, when I asked uh, General Breedlove and General Gorin's two uh, Cold War era F 16 pilots, would you ever fly your F 16 that close to a moving platform like Donald Cook? And they said, no way. If, if the guy sneezed, he might have buried his wing into the Donald Cook. Now, what would have happened then? We'd be explaining um, that this was a pilot error and not a shoot down of that aircraft. So that went into the dialogue, as you pointed out, Bill, for Inc. C that year. And we talked a lot about hey you don't want to do this Uh, this is reckless behavior it's dangerous and uh, there ought to be an ability to communicate with the ship and the cockpit of that aircraft uh, through some frequency uh, to ensure that everybody knows what's going on i mean we're looking at this aircraft uh, back then the russians would typically fly with what we call a wings clean configuration which is uh, no weapons on the wings Now, in the interactions and the intercepts I see today, they're coming out wings dirty, or they have weapons on board. Which, again, you know, that's another bit of the calculus that goes in the commanding officer's mind on how he is, what is the intent of that pilot, and uh, at what point uh, is he obliged to defend his ship under defensive rules of engagement. And I won't go into those here on the program, but these are all things. Uh, that go into the minds of RCOs. And that's why we have some of the best and the brightest out there running these great warships around the theater. Now, incidents at sea, it's really important to communicate. That's been around since 1972. It's a good uh, treaty. It's an instruction written by Echelon 1, which means the Chief of Naval Operations. And last year, in discussion with Admiral Richardson, you know, this used to be held in Naples, in my headquarters in Naples, every other year, and it will be done in Moscow, so uh, odd years, even years, back and forth. And we would have a dialogue, and we would come together at the table. And I must admit, the first time I was exposed to it, uh, it was not me at the table, it was the chief of staff. So uh, one year, uh, Admiral O'Connor did this, Cat O'Connor did it for the United States Navy. And uh, uh, one of the most uh, interesting things about it is the conversation was candid, Uh, it was honest, it was robust, but it was also cordial. So these things happened over the last year. The United States would present its side, the Russians would present a number of issues that they were bothered about, and we'd have a dialogue about it. And the outcome of that dialogue would be, how can we uh, reduce risk and mitigate any kind of an untoward incident or accident, like the P3 incident that took place over Hanan uh, Island many, many years ago, which uh, was not good for either side. And so uh, then we would go off, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the incidents continue to happen. But I think over time, as I integrated from my time as a one-star, three-star, four-star in, uh, in Naples, uh, they have decreased. I don't have as many negative interactions on the surface of the ocean between Russian Federation, Navy, and U.S. or NATO assets. Uh, they tend to act very professionally. It's mostly in the air with intercepts and those could possibly be due to different pilots different you know is it an air force guy in the in the cockpit a navy guy it depends and uh, every situation is different but there's a right way and a wrong way to do an intercept and uh, to come at one of our reconnaissance aircrafts that's flying in international airspace come very close wingtip to wingtip within 10 feet then put on your afterburners and turn in front of the cockpit of that American aircraft and rattle the fuselage of that aircraft is very dangerous. And uh, it should not happen, and we will continue to demarche them as long as these uh, dangerous activities continue. But the good news is the Incidents at Sea program is a way for us to continue dialogue, and that's extremely important. We've got to be able to talk about these things because if we don't talk about them, then they could become worse. So, uh, the Russians are also signatories to CUES, the Code for Unplanned Encounters at Sea. Uh, this was an international uh, agreement that was signed at uh, the Western Pacific Naval Symposium in Qingdao in China back in 2013. Uh, that's one that happened on Admiral Greener's watch. The French are also there, signatories. The Americans are signatories. The Chinese, the PLA Navy, is, they were the, uh, the host of the conference they've signed on. Several other nations. Um, INC-C is between Russia and the United States. It's a bilateral bilateral agreement. So when people ask me about, well, how do all the other nations in NATO communicate with the Russians or Chinese warships when they come through? And I offer cues as an example and say, if you're not uh, a signatory, you ought to sign on to it because it's very, very similar to the incidents at sea. And it gives commanding officers who come um, within line of sight of one another the ability to communicate their intentions and avoid, you know, any kind of... Uh, untoward act or incidency great question thanks
0: so when you have these get-togethers what what is the russian explanation for their actions especially when they're presented i imagine you bring video evidence or fo- photographic evidence what 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 are they how do they push back or they just yeah you're right you got us we won't do it again
2: well uh i think there's two sides to every story ward and i will just say that uh i'll leave it at that okay <laughs> okay
0: fair enough Um, So it's one October, the first day of the fiscal year, the new fiscal year. So that puts us in mind of budgets. Uh, Downstairs, you were just talking about the third offset. And it seems like last year we made, or CNL Richardson made a deliberate choice that sort of surprised certainly some of us carrier aviators, um, where we, at one point, were, I don't know if we'd say we made a decision, but we were thinking about not refueling Truman. Um, And I think some of that felt like in lieu of the third offset. Um, so what are your thoughts around the the choices therein, both as a, cur- a guy who's dealing with current ops but has wants to also have an eye on, on the way wars may be fought in the future?
2: Well, I think, uh, uh, first of all, we're very fortunate because I think the president's budget has uh, been very generous uh, to us for the last couple of years. So, you know, we're talking uh, in the realm of 733 billion dollars for defense. And I'm a firm believer that uh, that's money well spent uh, in defense of American interests and security. And the aircraft carrier is part of that. And you heard me talk earlier about, uh, you know, everybody wants aircraft carriers. Some nations have them, but not many. Uh, Nobody can boast a a uh, 12-carrier strike group capability uh, like we will eventually be able to do when uh, everybody uh, is uh, construction is completed and sea trials are completed for for all of these platforms and we see how spectacular they are uh, most recently in the past year i had uh, the ambassador the u.s ambassador to the russian federation out on abraham lincoln and uh, we were doing joint carrier ops in the mediterranean with uh, john c stennis each uh, 90 to one hundred thousand uh tons apiece and so uh, ambassador huntsman did the math and said hey uh, there is no substitute for 200,000 tons of forward deployed diplomacy, and nothing more needs to be said. And as the ambassador of the Russian Federation, that was significant. And uh, this was a man who understood uh, naval power projection, the capabilities that we bring to the table, and the fact that uh, we're all about deterrence and uh, looking for ways to avoid conflict, not looking for ways to start a conflict. That's why I like NATO so much. NATO's Article 5 is all about deterrence. We don't grab and take anybody else's territory like the Russians did in Georgia or like they did in Crimea. We defend the borders of those signatories of NATO. The 29 soon to become 30 uh, allied members, including our own. And, again, uh, the alliance uh, came to our defense during 9 Now, the carrier, um, you talked third offset, and there's uh, a lot of new technologies, and we're investing in cyber and space um, you know, a decade ago, uh, cyber and space were were not being discussed as seriously as domains as they are today. Uh, we have a new space command coming on board. I think that's terrific. Uh, anybody that hasn't read Singer's book Ghost Fleet, which is fiction, ought to read Ghost Fleet because it underscores. We like to think
0: of that as August Cole's book. Yes, okay, He's Cole a frequent, and Singer. No, yeah, yeah. podcast. Uh, no, both. That's you're for absolutely you, right. word. You're
2: absolutely right. <laughs> you know, e- each of those uh, tremendous authors deserve the credit. And if you if you read that book, it's such a fantastic book. That's one I couldn't put down because it's a great story too. But Everything is footnoted, and the footnotes are just not a reference to a document that you know comes off the shelf. They're studies of, yes, this capability to take out our GPS satellites exists. And we're starting to see GPS jamming in my theater now. So this is, uh, this is the beginning of what is you know an ongoing war in cyberspace every day. So those are important. But uh, you while know, well, you invest in all the new technologies, the unmanned systems, the artificial intelligence, Um, you know, things like directed energy weapons, uh, I'm all in favor. Uh, At the same time, we kind of have to hold what we got while those new technologies come on board and become proven. We just launched, uh, you know, the the, uh, production line version of the the MQ-25, which is the unmanned tanker that gives uh, the aircraft carrier uh, additional reach for its uh, strike fighters over the horizon so that thing can hang out there and uh, we can be at a, at a very comfortable standoff distance and conducting operations uh, uh, in the battle space or in times of crisis or in times of war uh, from uh, a very long distance away where, where they can't see us or they can't uh, get to us with some of the new systems that are being designed by our adversaries today. I think that's, uh, that's very positive. Uh, but we need to hold what we've got for the time being until we integrate some of these new technologies into the plan. Uh, and we need to get there fast. So uh, uh, fast is good, and uh, that means that we're going to have to experiment. We may fail, but uh, I don't know how much longer the, uh, the government will be as generous uh, with the defense budgets that we've had for the last couple of years. And it has allowed us to get ourselves out of the readiness hole that we were into and uh, to get you know wholesome again. Uh, so we've got to be able to husband those resources and protect that at the same time uh, we've got to get into the, the new era of cyberspace and some of the new technologies and revolutionary systems that are out there and incorporate them on the platforms that exist today. Um, you know, I was out on one of the Zumwalt-class ships, and I was struck by the incredible amount of uh, energy that the propulsion plant can generate, uh, the amount of space that's available for modularity and new technologies and the whole forward deck that is ripe for some kind of a system, whether that be uh, a railgun system or whether that be directed energy or something else. And so, uh, you know, that's that's a battlefield laboratory just waiting for some of this new technology to come in, and I can't wait for it to get there as soon as possible. So thanks for your question. That was a good one.
1: I wanted to, uh, to switch to Africa a little bit because downstairs with our staff, you mentioned that, uh, you often tell people back in Washington that we ignore Africa at our nation's peril. In our, uh, common psyche, in, in the journalism world, in the, fr- in the front page news, Africa is, is rarely there. It's rarely present, but it's, it's clear and present for you every day. It's a big, it, it is half your job. Uh, on your most recent episode of your podcast, you talked about a trip to Guyana. Uh, had some op, you know operations that uh, I think it was the Carson City was doing uh, helping uh, the the Guyanan forces and some of the others in West Africa. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what's going on in Africa and what concerns you there, and what you what you think the U.S. needs to do over the next couple of years to sort of change course uh, to do things better in Africa.
2: Right. So uh, you know, fifty-four countries on the continent of Africa, and uh, the combatant commander at Africom, General Steve Townsend, who's a terrific guy, just came on board. Um, You know, he has uh, uh, cognizance or within his area of responsibility, as we define it, uh, 53 of those countries. Egypt belongs to uh, CENTCOM. And so that's a lot, um, you know, for one combatant commander uh, uh, to do and to work with all those allies and partners. Uh, So that is a a, uh, challenging problem for us in uh, time of— what is a generous budget uh, from a military perspective, but the combatant commanders only have so much to go around. What I do for General Townsend is uh, in the maritime domain. We, We do maritime domain awareness. We do maritime security. We help our African partners come up with African solutions to African problems. We have three signature series exercises we do every year. So all three exercises are conducted in the same year. So Cutlass Express, which is on East Africa, and uh, Phoenix Express, which is in North Africa, and the Maghreb, in the Mediterranean. And Obengami Express, which is in a very important region called the Gulf of Guinea, which is in West Africa. And there's uh, a lot of interest in Europe by former colonial powers, by the French, by the British, and by the Portuguese in uh, Francophone, Anglophone, and Lusophone uh, colonies in West Africa. And a lot of trade going back and forth, and a lot of nefarious activity. By that, I mean piracy. Uh, trafficking and human trafficking, narcotics and illegal weapons, and all of this has uh, uh, a relationship or a nexus with terrorism. You know, you can't have one without feeding the other. It's a symbiotic relationship. So that, in and of itself, is uh, a threat uh, to uh, uh, freedom of commerce and freedom of maneuver on the high seas, and also a potential threat uh, to our homelands and to North America. So. Whatever we can do to help our African partners out uh, in securing their maritime domain uh, is, in my estimation, money well spent. So we do this with an economy of force type of operation. These exercises uh, that occur every year are done with partners and allies, uh, both in Europe uh, as far down south as Brazil. The Brazilians are frequent participants. And I was delighted uh, this past year that for the first time in 10 years, I've been doing this for 10 years and. uh, In Naples since 2010 with the Africa Partnership Station, we had the Indian Navy participate in uh, East Africa in Cutlass Express, which is the triangle between Mombasa, Kenya, Djibouti, and the Seychelles Islands. They sent an Indian frigate and helped us conduct training with uh, those nations uh, that had challenging environments and instances of piracy and other nefarious activity in their waters. Uh, Same thing in the Gulf of Guinea. I think we had a a significant uptick in presence this past year in 2019 because we went to other places uh, to ask for uh, capability. So, for example, the United States Coast Guard sent over one of their cutters. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Thetis did a marvelous job, and this wasn't an exercise. This was a real-world op called Operation Junction Rain. We typically do this every year with our African partners, and when we can get a ship, we have a ship, but when we don't, We'll send advisors down, from typically from the Coast Guard, uh, the service which is uh, best attuned to security in inland or territorial waters than an economic zone. I'm talking about illegal fishing and piracy and activity that that takes um, income away from a state and deprives uh, African countries of of their due uh, in their maritime domain, a return on investment. But this time we had the uh, Coast Guard Cota Theta, so she did operations up and down the Gulf of Guinea, uh, intercepted ships that were violating, violating fisheries laws, uh, actually rescued a couple of fishermen that had been at sea for about a week, and uh, we got to them just in time, and even took care of some environmental concerns with uh, sea turtles that were caught in nets and freed them. So very successful deployment, and I laud Uh, Commandant Schultz and the Coast Guard for allowing us the opportunity to work with uh, very professional mariners in the Coast Guard. And, you know, if the balloon goes up and we end up uh, ever uh, going to war in the future, just like the Second World War, the Coast Guard and the Navy will be hand in glove and we'll be together, working together. So that was terrific. The Carson City deployment. Carson City is one of our former joint high-speed vessels. So, uh, you know, a big commercial ferry that we have turned into the expeditionary patrol frigate. So it is the bridge uh, between um, you know the former uh, Oliver Hazard Perry class frigates uh, that went out of commission and the next generation of frigates that we're working on design-wise and budget-wise right now. So those ships are workhorses. They, they can carry a lot of cargo and a lot of containers. So uh, uh, we put together a deployment plan for Carson City, which, by the way, belongs to the UCOM commander, to General Scaparotti and General Walters. And at the time, I said... Uh, This is mapped Global Force Management Allocation to UCOM. But I would like to work with AFRICOM and this ship in West African waters on a number of different things, Uh, medical training for personnel in the navies of those African nations. So we put some docks in a box on the ship. We had corpsmen and specialists that were able to go down, not do surgery or anything like that, not like a hospital ship but provide them with training and best practices that we use and see how they do it in their different naval bases down the coast of the Gulf of Guinea. We had the chaplain corps go along and do some outreach with Comrail, community military relations, with uh, orphanages and schools. Tremendously successful, and we had other nations participate with their chaplains. Uh, we got maintenance personnel, and this was just uh, Navy guys and gals that had a skill, an engine man. You know, I called my friend at... Uh, uh, Naval Sea Systems Command, my classmate, Vice Admiral Moore, and I said, got anybody wants to come over here and do this deployment? And he had a lot of volunteers, you know, more than we could take. Uh, we had people from other ships that volunteered to get on Carson City, take some old parts you know, from the uh, the DRMO down with us. We knew that the Africans had a number of what we call defender boats. Uh, it's uh, a foreign military sales item that uh, we had given them years ago. Some of these boats had been rowed hard and uh, put away dry you know, on the shore. We tried to fix as many of those with sailor power and old parts that we could. What we learned was there was a lot of things that we couldn't do that required some additional capability. And uh, in talking with Admiral Morley of the Navy International Programs Office, he's been inundated with a number of requests from those navies uh, to provide in foreign military sales and FMS case to do more next year. And he's very interested in that. Building their capacity saves us having to do this in the long term. It's better for trade, and it's certainly better for security in the maritime domain. So that's why we do what we do. And if you look at the future, the statistics I give people are by 2050, there will be 2.5 billion people living in the continent of Africa. The Africans will surpass the Chinese in population growth they will surpass the Indians in population growth. One in four citizens of the world in 2050 will be African. And the, pro- the projection is that 60% of those people will be under the age of 24. And so I think it is in our interests in the West uh, to assist them to find solutions to the problem of rule of law and governance, whether that be in the maritime domain or ashore so that they can have what we want. And it's the same thing. you know. They want an education, they want a job, they want a family, they want a roof over their head, and they wanna live in a safe haven where there is a security force, a police force, uh, border control that makes sense and is right for that nation. And that's what we have here in America. And it would be wonderful if we could Take that youth bulge of those 60% under the age of 24 and help them give something back uh, to their country and to their continent. One of the things that, uh, there's a CNN show I watch every weekend in Europe. Um, I don't see it that much over here. It's called African Voices. And it talks about the energy, uh, the innovation, and the entrepreneurship of the African people. And uh, they can be our trade partner And our security partner, uh, if we participate and if we want them to, if not, they will go elsewhere in the great power competition. And there's plenty of other nations knocking at the door. So I think it's in our best interest to continue that relationship.
0: So for those in the listening audience who don't understand the life of a four-star, how often do your duties bring you into the D.C. arena? Uh, You know, your headquarters is in Naples. Um, Cappardicino, how often do you get back stateside?
2: Yeah, it's about once a quarter uh, of late with uh, the Sino change of command. I was delighted to come back and celebrate that day with uh, Admiral Richardson and Admiral Gilday. And then Admiral Gilday held a short uh, four-star uh, session the next day uh, with those of us uh, that have the privilege to wear that rank in fleet forces, Pack Fleet, myself, Admiral Caldwell, uh, Vice Chief Burke. And uh, I'm here this time because this will be his first official Three and four-star conference uh, here in Washington D.C., and we will talk about uh, his plan and how we can help him enable it for the future. Uh, so I come back about once a quarter. Uh, we're all very busy over there, and uh, you know our day jobs uh, uh, keep us hopping. And uh, there's plenty to do in the theater, uh, but it's also good to to remain connected with what we call the echelon one, the headquarters here, uh, the four-star leader that uh, that is going to take our Navy into the future, and I'm pretty confident about all that, and I look forward to the discussions that we'll have for the remainder of the week, and I'm delighted that you guys gave me an opportunity to come over here and see my friends at the Naval Institute and share some of those uh, exciting things that we're doing in the theater, and we invite you to come back and write about whatever you want.
0: Fantastic. Well, we're delighted to have you back on the yard. We were comparing notes on the elevator ride between class of 82 and 81. Are you and Tom Moore, the last two guys from 81, left on active duty?
2: So uh, it's me, uh, Tom Moore, and Frank Caldwell. Okay. And uh, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody out there in listener land that's still on active duty from uh, the great class of 81. Uh, But uh, those are the guys that uh, that I've gotten in current memory.
0: We've had Emma Moore on the podcast. He was actually with us at West, two Wests ago, and right. he, he was in my company. 21 at, at the academy when uh, back in the good old days so yeah every slap
2: shot carter just retired from here he was an 81 guy too <laughs> i'm exactly, sure he would exactly. never let you forget it. he would not <laughs> let me forget it yeah
0: no we did a mini oral history with him that's a fantastic episode for those who haven't heard it yet that that one was re, was right up there with the yeah. our, just, before, our before, ones. Yeah, just
1: before his change of command yes, which was just, yes. it was great it was great
0: great to do a great job here Absolutely.
1: Our guest today, uh, Admiral Jamie Fogo, the commander of U.S. Naval Forces in Europe and Africa. Uh, Sir, thank you so much for stopping by the Naval Institute, sharing your time with the staff and with us on the podcast and our audience. Uh, Always great to have you. I wanted to thank you also for writing for proceedings and writing for our blog, Often. Uh, and uh, as, uh, as you can attest, we exist to, uh, to publish the great ideas of people on active duty, whether you're a four-star or whether you're a young petty officer uh, just getting started in your Navy career. So uh, thanks again for what you do for the forum and for the Navy and for the nation. Uh, great, to, great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you both, Bill and Ward. It was a pleasure to be here. I hope to uh, see you again.
1: Definitely. All right. Well, that uh, is another example of why victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you all again next week.
0: our podcast is brought to you by northrop grumman northrop grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain by leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next generation innovations they're giving your forces a decisive advantage that's why they're a leader in transformative airborne ew to learn more visit northropgrumman.com ew